everybody. My name's Tim. This is Ethan. Uh, we got a whole list of stuff to talk about this week. What's up, man? How are you? Doing good, man. How hey, you been? I'm good. I just got out of Muay Thai probably 20 minutes ago, and I'm showered, and I'm feeling, you know that post-workout buzz where like you're kind of exhausted, but you also have like this little rush of energy, and you're, you're sort of in a flow state? I feel very flow right now. I feel like we're going to have a really great episode. Did you get beat up today? A little bit. From all the running I used to do, I have really like inequalities in my in muscles. So some stuff I'm really good at, but some stuff I'm really bad at. So blocking kicks like hip flexors, just standing up and lifting my my legs up without rotating my body. I really, really struggle at it. So my kicks are great, but then I'll get reminded by my trainer where when we're sparring or something like that, I'll throw a kick and I feel all good about it. But then he kicks me right back and I, I don't have the strength of my hip flexors to block it. And so then I'm I'm totally knocked off balance, you know. So that's what I'm working on. Right on. Yeah, yeah sometimes that's nice to just kind of uh, go and and get beat up in the afternoon, and, yeah. and like it's there's a centering quality to it. Certainly. We have to shout out somebody who said some very nice things about us on the podcast. This is sort of a mystery person. Their username is Wa Nelson ninety two eighty two. This is the review that you sent me. I'm assuming this is a review on the podcast. It's always a screenshot. That's the though. name W A Nelson. Yeah. It's got to be Wade. He follows me on Twitter. Hold on. I mean, how many other WAs could there be? Wade Nelson. Maybe it's Instagram. Actually, that's a good question. I don't know. Walter. Yeah, shout it out. Let me find him so we can put his handle in the show notes. But um, but yeah, Yeah, he left us a great review. What's it say? WA Nelson 9282. Whoever this is, thank you very much. It's kind words. It says, it's the copywriting podcast you've been looking for. I love listening to these dudes talk. The subjects Tim and Ethan talk about can run the gamut. I didn't know that's how gamut is spelled, but I looked it up and it actually is. <laughs> um, but it always ties in with copy. They also, which is weird that I couldn't spell gamut, given that we write about writing. They also highlight other awesome resources, leave links in the show notes so it's easy to find context for what they're discussing. I like that they cuss. All right. He likes the swear words. I like that they can cover subjects that make them vulnerable and aren't afraid to share what they've learned from their failures. These dudes are honest, and it feels like listening to your two smartest friends share their ideas and somehow become smarter just by being in the same room. This was awesome, man. You tweeted this to me and made so my good. day. Yeah, thanks for whoever wrote this. If it is Wade or Walter or somebody else, W.A. Nelson 9282. Really appreciate you out there. Yeah, it's his handle on Instagram. I just found him is Wade Nelson 0902. And uh, I know we say this every week, but when you and I started this podcast, we had no expectations and really no clue what we were doing. So <laughs> when, when we get these reviews, it, it makes us feel really great. I send them to Ethan right away and we like gawk over it for a couple of minutes. So. <laughs> Wade, yeah. we appreciate you. Thank you for the five-star reviews, and uh, we're going to keep going. Okay, so I've got a couple of things that I want to talk about today. First, let me th- I'm going to throw a title by you. You tell me if you've heard of this before. Goldman's Tips on Writing. Never. You're going to like this. You're going to nerd <laughs> out about this, and I, and I hope our audience will too. We'll get into it in a second. But the second thing, and I want to throw this out up front so that people know the direction that we're heading. I want to talk more about AI-generated content. We've talked a little bit about it before in the past, mostly as it results to or as it um, relates to images and maybe some writing. And for the most part, we've said it's going to be like a net positive. But I have a new and somewhat hot take on this entire field, and I really want to get this recorded this week. So we'll get there in a second. But first, let me tell you about Gary Gullman's writing tips. Do you know Gary Gullman? Have you ever heard no. of him? You okay. always I know these like legendary copywriters. I, every time you bring these people up, I feel so out of the loop. I, you know, it's, it's people I stumble across, and I have never heard of him before either. To be to be fair, Gary Gullman's a comedian, and he's pretty funny. I started looking into some of his stuff. I only heard about him because he was mentioned on Tom Segura's podcast, the, the podcast that he does with his wife. They were uh, interviewing Dane Cook. I'm listening to a lot of Dane Cook interviews these days. And and Cook said something interesting about how he thinks about storytelling. He laid out this really interesting little framework that he uses to not only develop jokes, but also like improv live. And as he was saying it, Tom Segura says, oh, this is like we're this is almost like we're talking about Goldman's tips for writing. 
And so I was like, what is that? I got into it. And it turns out, here's the deal. Gary Goldman's a comedian. I had never heard of him, but he's, he's big. He's done Leno. He's got, or he's done, uh, he looks Conan. familiar. He's, yeah. He's got stuff out there, but for whatever reason, I had not stumbled across him. But the coolest thing is that I, apparently he's like made it his task to, from time to time, share tips on how to write comedy on Twitter. And it's taken this like cult following and somebody, do I have share access right now? Because I'll show you this. Like this. Yeah, we got to pull up his Twitter now. If, if, well, I'll if we're show talking you Twitter. I'll show you something even better. Somebody took it upon themselves to get all of his writing tips into one spot. And they shared it in a Google Doc. And I've got it here. It's 75 pages of writing tips <laughs> from a comedian who's like really good. He's very smart. I've started getting into some of his stuff. And it's all just very... I would say like smart comedies, witty. It's a lot of wordplay. And, uh, I like it for that reason. So I wanted, look at this, 75 pages of just tweets on his thoughts <laughs> on like how to write comedy, joke writing, writing in general. And I wanted to start here for a couple reasons. One, obviously the people listening to this like writing and maybe haven't heard of this guy. And I always like somebody who shares stuff on the craft of writing. But specifically comedy, you and I have talked about this off mic yeah. a couple of times. To me, I think comedy is one of the most impressive forms of writing because very often, like, in order to be truly funny, you have to be both honest and you have to be saying something that is not obvious. And it's not, and then you have to construct it in a way, or rather, it has to be totally obvious, except nobody realizes it's obvious until you get to the end of what you're saying. Right. So it's just a very elegant form of writing for people who do it well. And so I wanted to go through like two or three of his tips here, just from page one, get your take on some of them and we'll see what people think of this. And if they like it, maybe we'll revisit this I over love the next. This. Yeah. Okay. You're I into it. This. Definitely. Okay. Okay. So like I said, there's 75 pages of this, but I just looked at page one and I think there's six or seven things that fit on this first page. We'll go through two or three of them. Here's a tip that I like. I want to. I'll read the full tip, get your take on it, and then I'll, I'll tell you something about what this reminds me of. So here's a taste. He says, um, write out a favorite joke word for word, one sentence at a time. After completing each sentence, analyze each word. Why does it work? How do the syllables of the words create rhythm? How do these sentences build the punchline? And what's the grammar of comedy? You can do this at any stage, but it's probably best early in your career. If it sounds daunting to write out entire jokes, you should know that the immortal Hunter S. Thompson transcribed the Great Gatsby word for word, word. for word. Word for word. Yeah. I love this. This is basically something known as copy work. Yep. And I don't know, is this is this discussed inside of like the copy blogger ethos? I know Sam Parr mm -hmm. is big on this. I know Neville Medora is big on this. Is this something that's been on like your radar part of your world or anything? Never. And it should be the, how would you call that? Like the getting the feel for the intonation of the mm -hmm. writing. Our suggestion was always read it backwards, not like actual word for word backwards, but start at the end and then read a sentence and then go above it and then read a sentence. Because sometimes when you're reading something, you can kind of expect what comes next. And so you, you miss some of that. And so that's always been our suggestion. I, I love this because I loved the line about timing the punchline. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of the English language and how it is specifically not designed, not intentionally designed, but the layout of the English language makes it so that punchlines can be very effective. And, and I'll give you an example. I speak German, not totally fluently, but I, I, I lived in Germany for a while, for a little what? bit. And I, I took like five, five or six years of German. So I'd be pretty rusty right now. I haven't spoken a word of German in years, but in German, the verb is at the end of the sentence and it makes it really, really hard to hit the punchline at the right spot of the sentence. So I'm not a comedian. Being on stage as a comic is actually my number one biggest fear and I'm not lying about that. But let's just say the punchline was like, he punched him in the face, right? In German, it would be he in the face was by him punched. It's basically Yoda. Like Yoda speaks German just with English words. And it, it makes it really, really difficult for that like, and then he punched him right in the face type thing to get the intonation of the word. 
And uh, ever since I, I learned about that, I've had a, a much bigger appreciation for the, the music of sentences. And I think comics are a master of that. That's so interesting. I had never thought about how the structure of a language could change the timing on jokes. But that's really interesting. It makes me wish that I could speak German so that I could do this with German comedians and yeah. figure like, do you have any sense for that? How German, is there such a thing as German comedy? And, yeah. and, and do they structure the jokes differently in order to they get do. around that? Or? Yeah. Huh. I watched a documentary about it once. Do you remember how you said, I can't remember what it was, but the reason why some languages get so straight to the point is because in the Northern hemisphere, they, don't have time to mess around because they have a limited window to grow their crops. Mm -hmm. Well, part of the reason, in my view, why Germans have that like Prussian mentality of like manufacturing is because of the way they speak. And so it makes it very difficult to have the same kind of humor that we can have because of the sentence structure. It's hard to explain if you sit and have conversations, you know, it's, you can feel the difference where it's a little bit more difficult to be like a, a clown because of the intonation of the sentences. But yeah, I've, I've always thought that. I was like, I think the reason why the German culture is so disciplined with their, it's not necessarily rigidness, it's just, uh, just quality, right? Let's just call it quality. I think a lot of that has to do with the way that their language is structured. That is so interesting. Yeah, for people listening, there's a theory that one of the reasons life seems to slow down when you go to these tropical destinations is because they're, this is a theory, and I'm paraphrasing too, but because the crops grow year round, there wasn't the same pressure to be as rigid in terms of like how, how, how you spend your day, how you spend yeah. your week, how you spend your month. The, the growth cycle isn't the same. So you have up in the northern hemispheres, uh, this very rigid culture around that was very uh, time-centric, which is where that busy New York culture seems to come from. And then as you get closer and closer to the equator, all around the world, things seem to slow down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this extends to language, which is what Tim was saying as well. So there's a lot of languages that, you know, again, very close to the equator, and that could just be a cor- or a, you know a correlation, doesn't have to necessarily be the causal feature, but they very often are lacking different tenses that we w- wouldn't even consider like it possible not to have so they won't have certain future tenses or certain yeah like time sensitive tenses and the th- again the theory there is just that your environment dictates your culture and your i guess language as well so it's super interesting i love this too i think the thing that comes to mind for me as i mentioned is this concept of copy work there's an idea there which i'll i'll share here briefly and then there's sort of two takes on it and i'll give people both of them so the well, the one that I mentioned that Neville Medora and Sam Parr are both really big on is what I would call, well, I think Sam pretty much popularized the term copy work, or maybe it was Neville. But the idea is like you are looking at a source material and you're literally just copying it straight. Just writing that, it on the page. Exactly. For by a lot hand, of the same, by the way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And for the same reason that you just mentioned going through something line by line, you start to pick up the rhythms, you start to pick up the voice of something like how it works. There's something about that handwriting, which is so important. Then there's another version of this, which takes a lot more time, but I would definitely recommend people check out if this is something that they're really into, if they nerd out on it. And I think it was Ben Franklin who used to do this. This is where I got the idea from. But what he would do is he would read something that he admired, then put it away and try to recreate it from memory. So not your own take. You're literally doing everything you can to try to rewrite what you just wrote. And you could do this by hand. You could do it on a computer, whatever you want. You're not going to get it anywhere close to right. And one of the most important things is that you power through, even though you know you're like, I'm, yeah. oh, I'm missing something. You just keep going. Create it. Then what you do is you pull the source material out and you compare what you wrote to the source material and you rewrite it this time using that copy work mentality. So actually looking at it. And what that allows you to do is there's a really interesting reflection period that goes on in there where you're like, you, there will be things that you wrote that were wildly different from what the source material was. And it gives you this window to be like, well, why did I go in this direction? And they use those words. And I think that method for me has been the one that led to the most reflection on like why certain words are used. 
oh, I see why he used this word because he's building towards that a little bit later on, stuff like that. So that one takes way more time. I'd say you don't want to sit down with like less than an, an hour, hour and a half to really do that. But you can do it in small sips and it's just a huge, very steep uh, or very quick learning curve when you take that approach as well. It's so effective. I, I've never done this, but it reminds me of when I would learn how to do anything. If you learn to play guitar, what's the first thing you do? You learn Smells Like Teen Spirit, right? It's the most easy, recognizable song with four power chords that you can play over and over again. And then two notes that go ding, ding. Like, (laughs) Nobody comes out of the gate with music trying to write their own stuff. But with writing, we don't do that. We don't mimic others. We, We immediately go straight to trying to create our own work. And granted, as we do that, the stuff that we read, like we all have influences, you know, like my writing is heavily influenced by like three or four people. But I wonder if there's a science or any kind of proof that shows mimicking the people that you want to be like is a much faster, we're not even, not even mimicking, copying them, learning their music, basically, and playing it yourself is a faster way to get good at the skill than trying to to mimic them really is, is a better representation. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting point. Why is it that we, that we try to learn writing so much differently? Well, apparently too. So this is something that Sam talks about. He, he latches onto the same idea. And I guess this actually used to be how they taught writing. You know, you, you would get a copy work book and you would copy by hand, just page after page of, you know, well-known writing. And again, I think it's so interesting because it, works on multiple levels not only you're developing a skill of handwriting yeah. but but also that voice the internal voice which can structure so much more about how you think so i actually do this and a quick throwback to another episode that we did if people are interested and want to give this a try what i do is i copy the hey or um meh.com their sales page every morning seriously yeah yeah and it's you i mean really i have a notebook that. what's that you really do that yeah, here, give me one second. So Ethan's pulling out a notebook. Like, what have you learned from doing this? I'm actually not sure I could put it into words very well, but my voice has changed writing. And the reason I picked meh was because... We talked about how good that copy was. Yeah, it, it is quite good. I think what's interesting is the more you copy it, the more human the copywriters become to you. You become kind of familiar with it and then... After a few days, not just with Mad, but with any resource that you do for this, you'll start to recognize their stronger days versus their weaker days. Or if you again do this uh, with another resource or something, when you when you get closer to a particular writer, you start to notice when they're really on a roll versus maybe not so much. So wow. what it has allowed me to do is I feel like I can write in their voice or of a voice similar to that a lot quicker. It's a lot easier for me to sit down and crank out something that is conversational, that has like a good flow to it and specifically what i liked about their voice is that it's like very it's like you're you're on the inside of this community when you're reading it you know and i wanted that for trends and so i that's why i picked their stuff and i've just been copying it and letting it seep in so i'm not sure i could point to any particular thing that i learned but i will say it definitely works and it's like it gets to a point where it's so much easier to write now that i keep up the habit just because i don't want this core um yeah. part of my job to disappear. It's like it's like working out. You know, you don't you don't want to get out of shape. So it's easier for me to sit down for a half hour in the morning and just write whatever the day's pages. And by the way, for people who haven't read or heard the episode, the reason I picked mad.com is because there's their front page updates every it single changes day. every day. Yeah. Yeah. And it's short. It's, one, it's I can write the whole thing basically on one page. And I'll do that for a while. And then I'll pick another source. Like they're they're the focus right now. I'll probably do, I don't know, another two or three weeks of them. And, but then I want to, I want to start incorporating other, other different voices just to get some variety. Yeah. Um, so that's exactly where I was going. Let's say you do math for another two or three weeks and then you find somebody else. When the time comes for you to sit down and write something, knowing what you know about the stuff that you've done with math so far and you've gotten to know the personality of whoever the copywriter is, there's probably two or three of them, right? You, you, you can pick them out almost like you can recognize their their brush strokes in their writing. Yeah. Now let's say you do it for somebody else. Do you think 
knowing what you know now, you'd be able to pull the tools out from the different writers that you've copied over and over again and, and like apply them? It's a, it's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I think there's something that happens there on the human level. Yeah. It can't quite be explained. That and you're like, ideally you're developing your own style. So at a certain point, you'll start to create rules for yourself. And I'm sure I will have rules and reasons why I do things. But um, this is actually a perfect question, and I, and I think it takes us into the next point. And I, and I want to pause on your question because this next one is such a perfect tie-in, and I want to get your take on this. So just as the as this, the flag in the ground, you were asking, like, could you vocalize the rules that make for good writing under certain circumstances? Well Whether, said. Yeah, yeah well said. For, for a particular writer or for yourself. And I think the mm-hmm. for yourself one is where a lot of people will go with this too, because we're all ideally developing our own styles. Here's another one I want to get your take on. So the quote is, words with the b, p, or k sound. Is this Gary Goldman? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So words with the b, p, or k sound, at the be- especially at the beginning slash end, are funnier. No one knows why, but Buick is funnier than Nissan. I learned this early. I assumed everyone knew. They don't. Take some soft punch words and replace them with a B, P, or K sound. This to me is an example of like the kind of rule that you could develop for yourself through the course of copy work where you're like, ah, oh, no, you switch that word out because you really want something with, with a, a more of a punchy sound at the beginning, right? Like, yeah. p- or p-. those work better. I think you'd come to a rule like this eventually, but I wouldn't be able to vocalize it based on where I'm at yet. What's your take on this? Like this, this concept that there's something that's objectively funnier than other words. Yeah. You, would you buy into that or what? Of course I do. It makes me think the example that I gave was he punched him in the face. Perfect. That's the first thing I thought of. <laughs> and like even just how he said it, like Buick, I could say Buick five times in a row and just start laughing at it. And I don't know why, <laughs> but I could say Nissan five times in a row and, and kind of get annoyed by it. Like stop saying that, right? Imagine. <laughs> I don't even know why it's so funny. This episode is brought to you by. Yeah, yeah I, it's, it's amazing. What, what's so what interested me about that was this concept that there is something that is objectively funny out there. Yeah, like so much of humor is like observational, but then this notion is that, well, even within your observation, there are funny ways to say it, and then there are less funny ways to say it. I thought that was so unique. It's the enigma of comedy. So uh, there's a couple idols, heroes, I like to call them, because, you know, idols can let you down, but heroes can't. And Jerry Seinfeld is one of them. And the reason why I write every day is because Jerry Seinfeld says, write jokes every day and never break the chain. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to do that and not think about it. And I love, have you ever watched Comedians in Cars drinking coffee? Love that show. I love it. Like, I'm so sad that he stopped it. And I appreciate so much as a writer, as, and Seinfeld's really a writer. Like, he's got a great delivery and he's got his own gick, uh, his own gimmick, and he doesn't curse. And so he's, he's the whole package, like, arguably the greatest comedian of all time. But more than anything, he's a writer. And he talks about a thing that I relate to so much where writing is so painful and that's why you have to just get through it. And that writing is, is the differentiator because as a comedian, he's really pure where he says, the only thing that you care about is making the audience laugh. Like that's your job. And it doesn't matter if it was emotional and if people related to you and you know, if you were, vulnerable he's like none of that matters sometimes he gets in arguments with people about it and you can feel like the tension because he cares about it so much but to seinfeld and i guess as a copywriter this is true because it's like did it did it land did the sale happen did they laugh oh it didn't that means that you're a shit copywriter like oh they didn't laugh it doesn't mean that like nobody cares that you're vulnerable and relatable like they didn't laugh so you're a shit comedian and i think the I think the intangible about it, whether did the sale happen, did the sale not happen, did the laugh happen, did the laugh not happen, and there's like some mystery as to why, 
I think that's why we're so attracted to comedians, why we idolize them so much, because they do the most daring thing that could possibly be done. It's so interesting that you mentioned that. Um, Joe, I think it was Joe Rogan who was talking about this, where it's like early in his story, he went to see a comedian and he noticed this person was just standing on stage with nothing but their words. Mm -hmm. And then like, leading a whole bunch of people to have an emotional experience. And he yeah. says that was just the most incredible thing to him was this observation of seeing somebody with nothing but their words. No props, no gimmicks, no none of that. It's just your words. And really what that is when you when you dig into it is it's like there's a lot. It's it's your understanding of people, your understanding of experience, but with your point about Jerry is when you can boil it all the way down to did they laugh or not? Yeah. What you're really saying is you're taking away the excuse that the audience doesn't get it, yeah. right? Because I think I think about this a lot. We've I think I, maybe I've said on here. I think I want to try an open mic next year. Like oh. I've been starting to write jokes and I stuff like that. I just got so anxious, man. I just got so nervous. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm nervous about it too. Not from the being in front of people part. I I kind of love like speaking and stuff like that. I do too. But what I'm really nervous for is that the bombing, which you you have to do, obviously. So it, you're going to bomb. But there's a part of this that's like, oh, well, if I bomb, it's because something's wrong with me. I'm not funny. I don't get it. I'm not cool. I'm not, I'm not like in touch with the rest of these peers in this room. And what you're really saying though with Jerry's thing is like, no, nah, it's not that. It's not that. What it is is you've not learned to convey the thing that you've noticed yeah. in the in the way that connects with everybody else. Yeah. Right? It's not that the noticing is wrong necessarily. It's that you you have to unlock the language that other people are using to like kind of view their world. I think that's so interesting. You know, interestingly enough, it, it sort of ties in. There's only one or two more of these that I wanted to go through today, but that concept of unlocking the right language, I think, ties in with this next one. I'm sure you've heard this quote, this quote from Mark Twain. Uh, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning and the lightning book. And then uh, Goldman goes on to say, you've been meaning to do this. Go through your jokes and add some lightning today. Yeah. And the reason I... Have you heard that quote before but the, about the lightning? Okay. Of course. So I love that quote. But what I really wanted to bring up was this concept of going back through something you've you already created and adding lightning to it. So like going back through your stuff and being like, did I really get the right word here? Or is this really landing? What do you think about that? I'm thinking you could do this with tweets. You could do this with blog posts. Totally. It makes me think of something that has been going through my head a lot recently. I think I talked about it before. There's a book called Peak, and I always forget the guy's name. He's got like one of those three word names with a hyphen in it. But I'll pull it up. I didn't read the whole book, honestly, because it felt like one of those books that should have been a blog post. And it was fascinating. But the thing that I got out of the book the most is that there's a huge difference between practice and like intentional improvement. Because anybody can show up every day and go through the reps, right? But when you truly get to this, this peak performance, it's because you're approaching it with a different mindset. You're approaching it with like, I'm not here to just do reps. There's a specific thing that I want to measurably improve. And that sucks. Like nobody wants to do it. It, it applies to anything. It'd be like, how many people show up to the gym three days a week and just, kind of are the same and then how come there's that one person out of a hundred that over the course of four or five months can totally transform his or her body right mm -hmm. and the difference is like extremely intentional improvement extremely measurable and intentional improvement and i've i've never done that with my writing i've always just gone on to the next one i've always just put the next rep in and i've been ever since i read that book it makes me think like maybe this Seth Godin approach that I've always done, we're just like, do your job for the day, get another one in, isn't quite right because there's a, there's a, a level of like intentional, measurable mastery that I'm hmm. not applying. Hmm. 
that is really interesting. It's like the difference between focusing on creation and output versus in this case, Lightning. like improvement. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a question that came up with Danny last week was like, for a long time, he was focused on creation rather than distribution. And I think that takes a very purposeful switch in order to change, right? Like you have to decide, because I think this is something that a lot of content creators eventually come to this realization, which is after a certain point, it doesn't matter how good your stuff is if you're not getting it out there, right? Yep. Like you have to get it out there. Yes, you have to sit down and create and you have to make that a habit. And that's the first place to start. But just because you've created a bunch of great writing doesn't mean anyone's ever going to find it, yep. especially these days. And so there is this purposeful switch from just creation to creation plus distribution. And I think the same thing exists in what you're saying. Maybe that's, you know, there's like a level there, creation and then creation plus improvement on, on that. Do you, do you watch, uh, I can never pronounce his name, Hassan, Hassan Minaj? Hassan Minhaj, the comedian? Uh, I don't know. Is he a comedian? <laughs> I don't know who the hell that is because you're not pronouncing his name right. I think it's just Hassan Minhaj. He, he, uh, he has that show, The Patriot Act, which is like a, it was almost like a Colbert report kind of show. No, I never saw it. Dude. Okay. You got to watch. You have Netflix? You Netflix yeah. guy? So I okay. Netflix. Dude, watch this tonight. Does Jules like comedy? She loves it. That's why I always end up watching stand up comedians because. Yeah, she loved comedy. She, and I've always been obsessed with comedians, but she really loves watching stand-up comedy. So I've been watching a lot of it recently. Okay, so you got to do this, and then everybody listening to this, go do this too. And tweet at Hassan and tell him I sent you, and then tell him to come on our podcast. You got to go watch his new special. It's called The King's Jester. It is one of the most remarkable examples of storytelling and crowd control I've ever seen. The He'll King's take, Jester. Yep, The King's Jester. You know, like the fool of the court. Uh, it's brand new. It's fantastic. Great storytelling. But what's really impressive is if you watch him up there and you listen listen to how he's able to get the crowd way, 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 way up. And then yeah. all the way down to like dead silence. Wow. Dead. Just like that. Masterful crowd work. So do that. Then his other show is also on Netflix. The, the, um, the Patriot Act. Go back and watch season one, episode one, because what it shows you when I watched his special, I was like, man, what am I even doing with my <laughs> career? Dude, this is insane. I'll never be this good. And then I went back and watched the first episode of the show and he was good. But when I saw him in the first episode, I was much, it was much more approachable. It was a level of expertise that I feel like a lot of people would feel is manageable, right? Yeah. He was basically reading prompters and kind of telling jokes and hitting punchlines. Not the same level of expertise. So it's very cool to see like, oh, you can start as like a relatively normal presenter and just build that level of mastery. Yeah. So those are the two, King's Jester and then this the other Patriot one, Act. the yeah, Patriot Act, episode one, season season one, episode one. So good. All right. Last thing related to these writing tips. And then again, if you guys like this, let us know. And what we'll do is maybe we'll cover like one or two at, just in the beginning to warm up each show or something like that. Because there's, I mean, I'm looking at 75 pages. <laughs> Of this, so there's a, there's a lot to go through. So let us know if you like this, and then shout out to uh, Gary Goldman too. This is really cool thing to put all uh, to put out into the world, and then cool of somebody to uh, put in one place. So the last thing I'll point out, which I really love from uh, this first page here, is uh, tip number seven. He says, "Find." I'm just going to read it. There's a couple of sentences here. Find a comic friend to call slash meet and go over jokes, premises, ideas, etc. Play play. Is this funny? Right. Be honest, but gentle and don't just wait until it's your turn. Tell them if you've heard similar bits, two people is best. More is OK. It's one of the most fun and helpful exercises. Even if your partner just gives you more confidence in a new joke idea, it's invaluable. All in caps. A lot of the times they'll suggest excellent tags, additions to the joke, usually, but not limited to the punchline or different angles. It also gives you a safe place to say things out loud, which I think is so important. So Me too. Are doing I was that just going to say that. Media right now. Yeah. And here's the last part. He says, you can generally disregard the first idea that pops into your head because it's probably popped into many other heads too. Obvious punchlines are promiscuous. So th that's sort of a two-parter for me, maybe three parts. I really love this concept, not just for comedians, but also for writers of like really making time to get together with somebody else 
and just bounce ideas around. Be like, hey, should I like, should I talk about this? Uh, this is bugging me. Would this be good for Twitter or something like that? I think so many people are just putting stuff out, myself included, from time to time, especially on Twitter. This is where I suffer from that the most. But if you start from that place of like testing ideas and seeing what works somewhere and then like kind of elevating them up the chain of where you speak, uh, I think you're going to see a lot more traction on the things that ultimately make it out into the public than if you do the other way around. Yeah, this is my favorite one that we've talked about so far. James Altucher once wrote, you know how he, he kind of got his following on Quora? He was a big writer on Quora. I found one of his things. is how I discovered him, actually. And it was his writing tips. I've tried to find it before, again, and I can't find it. And one of them was delete the first sentence of everything that you write. And uh, when I heard that, it's like, the first one that pops into your head probably sucks uh, where Goldman, I can't remember the quote, yep. but where he said that's the first thing that came to my head and it's always true. I always write the first sentence and I don't delete it right away because I don't want it to be just sort of a repetitive, meaningless thing where I do yeah. it automatically. Like I, I really want to make sure that I write and then I come back and I look at the first sentence and every single time it's worth deleting. But you need that first sentence to get you to the second sentence, you know? Yep. So I think that's really important. And then I'm very lucky that my wife is like basically really good at everything. She's just one of those people. And she's a phenomenal, phenomenal writer. And I read everything I, I write on my, my, my blog post on timstaz.com because those are long pieces. And sometimes you get deep in them and you, you kind of lose sight of them. And she's been so helpful. She just knows how passionate I am about it. And I know sometimes she doesn't want to do it, but she always <laughs> does. And I always listen to her papers because she used to write like 10 page papers for her dietetics degree. And so we have an exchange. Um, I should do it with friends. My wife is basically my best friend. So I think it counts. And reading your shit out loud is is really so critical and so few people do it because one, it'll help you spell check. It'll help you edit. It'll help you get the flow. But more than anything, it writing is meant to be spoken, you know, like writing is a transition to conversation. And so you understand the conversation of your writing so much better when you say it out loud. And I think like nobody does it. I really do. It's just type, enter, type, enter, type, enter. And if, if you take a moment to read, what you wrote out loud, you'll improve your writing by like double instantly. That is a great tip. And also a great transition into this hot take that I have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to, I'm going to put a pin in something you said, which is very few people are actually taking the time to read their yeah. stuff out loud. Type, enter, type, enter, type, enter. I agree with you. And I think what we're going to see is only more of that because it's just gotten easier. There's a whole bunch of tools out there where you don't even have to do the typing part anymore. You just hit enter, 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 and it'll yeah. write an entire article for you. Okay. Let's talk about, let's talk about this on this podcast. And I said this a little bit earlier. We have a stance and I still believe in this that AI generated content creation engines are in general going to be a net positive for the creative community. I think they're going to be an so. on-ramp. You think so? Yep. You agree with me. But I was thinking about this recently, and I want to add a caveat to this. And the reason is AI-generated content has become the new buzzword in startups. I'm so it's, bored of it already. Yeah. So <laughs> bored of it. It's the thing like if you want to raise money, you better be doing AI-gen content stuff. That you... Three months ago, that was Web3. Before yeah. that, it was crypto and blockchain. Before yeah. that, it was something else, right? The creator. Yeah, before that, it was fintech. Yeah, fintech. Yeah. We see these terms come and go all the time. Okay, so who cares? Well, here's here's what made me perk my ears up and pay attention to this one in particular. Somebody made the uh, likening between NFTs and the excitement around AI-generated content. About how like it's a lot of a lot of buzzwords, a lot of stuff people don't really understand, and people are going to start making a lot of money in here. These early adopters, and when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, I think this person's right." And we're probably because this is sort of a law of physics, 
going to see a very similar crash. And when I say crash, here's, here's my hot take. A bunch of people are going to get burned by these content creation engines. Who? Not everybody. And this is the reason this is a difficult conversation to have is because there's a level of nuance to it that I think is going to get lost in most conversations. Some people listening to this are, uh, or I, like I think talking about it verbally is going to help me clarify it. The people who think AI gen is a replacement for human talent, big problem there. Why? I'll get to why in a second, but I just want to double down on this stance, right? Because I'm biased. I'm a writer. So I'm looking at this new technology that's coming out that a lot of people may say has the potential to do away with my job. So of course I'm going to sit here and go, wow, it's not a replacement for human writers. Let me, let me tell you why I think this is dangerous and why you should be very careful with this. If you're a business AI generated content, it's my, my take is that it poses an existential threat to Google as a search engine. And the reason for it is simple. AI gen, like say GPT three or copy.ai or Lex or all these other cool tools. They are very good at creating articles that sound like they're human written. And that's an amazing tool if you're a human, because now you have help creating the, the first draft of the article, doing kind of a heavy lifting so that you can go in and refine it, fact check it, all that kind of stuff. The issue for companies is going to be if they start to use these as a replacement for people. And the reason is the AIs do not understand context and they, they, they will say things that aren't true. So they'll, they'll, and I've seen this firsthand in my testing. They'll report statistics that are unverifiable. They cite sources that don't exist. What they're doing is they're creating an article that mimics the look of other articles. And people really need to understand what's going on behind the scenes. If you ask GPT-3 to write an article all about, say, uh, the future of blockchain, it will say, well, blockchain is expected to grow by 20% compounded annual growth rate every single year, according to, you know, Investors Weekly or something like that. It'll say that. And that sounds legitimate. But if you don't go track that down and make sure it's actually true, there's there's a very high likelihood that it's not necessarily pulling on real data. So why does that matter? I'm getting a little bit verbose here, but here's the, here's the short of it. As soon as Google starts to notice junk articles ranking in the SERP, they're going to shut this down. Yeah. They are going to start to punish the use of these tools. So anybody who buys in early and uses this as the basis for their content marketing strategy, that's going to be the NFT crash. And what happened in the NFT crash was, and what's happened in crypto crashes and basically every single crash that follows the wide set adoption of a new technology yeah, the is a bunch of people get in early. A bunch of money is made by selling all the me too people on the technology. And then something happens that just evaporates whoosh, all that value, right? Crypto punks, their value is not coming back. Well, that's debatable, but, but a lot of money was taken off the table. How can you do that in AI or in, uh, writing? The way you do it is by destroying the business function behind the writing. So yeah. your content doesn't actually sell anything. It's your content's ability to get you noticed on search engines. If all of a sudden junk articles are starting to rank on Google, people aren't going to use Google as much. So Google is going to destroy whatever can create these junk articles and they'll penalize everybody who's using them. And can I tell you something, Tim? I have a perfect example of this. Would you like to see it? Fuck yeah, I would. <laughs> I love Okay. I lo there, I'm very, very convinced that the recent algorithm that Google updated was designed specifically to punish AI content. We've seen it. I, I, I could give you... I mean, I'm not going to do it because they're my customers, but I could give you a full breakdown on the websites that have gone up in rankings since the recent update and the websites that have gone down in rankings and exactly why we think it is. And they, we don't, we didn't use AI generated content, but sometimes with budget restraints, you have to get content that you blow through a little bit more. It's just the way yeah. it is, you know? And so it's going to be harder and harder to get, I don't want to call it filler, um, cause it's informative and accurate, but non, templated content let's call it mm -hmm. it's going to be harder and harder to get templated content to viably bring you inbound search traffic i could do a whole case study on, on it already we, we just talked about it today i think that was very well put harder and harder to get templated content to drive inbound search traffic i think that's the best way of saying it 
And again, I want to I want to uh, highlight two points for people listening to this. I'm not anti AI gen. I think it's going to be a really useful tool in the toolbox of creators. But you got to be careful because there are now a lot of people out there who are going to try to sell you this as a sort of a cure all for your content creation needs. What they are is a great augmentation of whatever humans you're already working with. But you yeah. need to keep that people uh, element at some level. Doesn't have to look the same as it currently is. But my stance was Google is incentivized to shut this down. And that's like, those are some deep pockets. They're going to be working hard. So I said this recently in a group and somebody asked me, they said, well, that's an interesting take. They said, how do you think Google is going to recognize this? And I said, you know, I'm not really sure, but my suspicion is that they'll, they will opt for casting a wider net rather than a narrower one, right? So at first, there's going to be some human writers who also get caught up in this yeah. because what I suspect is going to happen is Google is going to say something like, hey, all content that fits this description, there's like a, a high degree of likelihood that it was AI generated. And so we're just going to start ranking all this stuff down. And so that's kind of where I left it. I said, I'm not sure what it's going to look like yet, but I think Early on, it's they're going to ding a whole bunch of people, and then they'll refine whatever the process is. And by the way, this is a cat and mouse game that Google's been playing for decades, right? Decades. Yeah. Yeah, this is not new for them. It's new for us as consumers, because it used to be hard to get your hands on this. But people have been trying to synthetically create content that ranks for Google (laughs) since the beginning. (laughs) Okay. I was thinking about that yesterday, like last night after work. I was thinking about it again, and 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 all of a sudden, I thought to myself, I'm like, Somebody must have asked the people at Google this. Like, I'm sure they've written about how they're going to handle this. Okay. And this is where the case study comes in. So I'm going to share my screen. And I'll describe what's going on for the people listening. Here's what I did. I literally just went to Google and I Googled, how will Google defeat (laughs) GPT-3? Right? And first result that comes up, there's a couple of results on the page. GPT-3 quietly damaging Google search. Ten ways Google will defeat GPT-3, Google's new trillion parameter AI language, something about that, I don't know. Anyways, sure enough, I come here and it's like, yeah, this has been discussed, all right? So I start clicking on articles, and this is the one that I want to show people. It's the very top search result, 10 ways Google will defeat GPT-3-based articles. Okay, this is the, uh, nope. No, it's, it's not the right one. Yeah, it's this one right here. So first thing I see, who's Samir the author? Shah. Samir Shah, co-founder at Boom and Bucket. Previously head of Cat Digital Labs, alum of MIT. And this is the part that I keyed in on. He's an MIT alum. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> this guy's technical, right? He knows his stuff. So he's smarter than us? Yeah, he's definitely smarter than <laughs> I am. Okay. I'm not going to bury the lead here. I'm reading this article and I start to get a little suspicious of it. And then sure enough, all the way down at the bottom, this the top ranking article on Google for how is Google going to defeat GPT-3? was written by copy AI. So he writes this entire article. There's no mention of copy AI anywhere in here at first. And you get all the way down to the bottom and it says the above content was generated under one minute using copy.ai's first draft generator tool. Now, let me break this down for a second because I want to reiterate why this helps support what I'm talking about in terms of like the threat that this poses to Google and Google's incentivization to shut this down. This is the top ranking result on Google. Let's like Number reiterate one. that a little bit. The top ranking result for how Google will defeat GPT-3 was written by, by copy.ai, which is it's basically the functionality. Yeah. Now, why does that matter? Because this article is shitty. And here's the interesting thing. About a third of the way through, I started to suspect I was reading an AI written article. Really? And I'm like, yes. And I'll, I'll show you exactly why. There's a few, there's two, I'll, I'll narrow it down to two reasons. But the broader point behind this, so I, what I mentioned is people are going to get burned. Here's the other thing. This is my other, the other part of my hot take. I think a lot of people who are super excited on AI gen, they are vastly underestimating how quickly humans are going to learn to tune this out. There, a lot of people are looking at this and they're looking at AI gen in a few different contexts. They're saying, well, now I can create articles that are going to rank on Google super fast, super cheap. I got news for you. People are not going to read this shit. And if they do read it, they're going to not trust your brand over it. Yeah, they're not going to convert over. 
Right. Because it's a real thing, by the way. I've really tested that. You can get stuff to rank and it still doesn't do anything for you. It's a real thing. People can tell. That's I'm so glad you just said that. People can tell thing. So one uh let me give you two other quick examples. There is an there is a thing out there now where there's a very uh a niche sales tactic where you'll instead of emailing somebody, you send a video message where you just say, yeah. Hey Tim, as Ethan, I I you know, I got this uh new drink. Liquid Death. I think you might like it. Um, just hit me up if you want to chat about it or something like that. Send that. We'll get like a 70 to 80 percent response rate because most people don't get video messages these days. So they look at that. And they go, oh, man, he took the time to shoot me a video message. This guy seems relatable. I'll say what's up, you know, see where it goes. Well, they now AI out the name, right? And then they send yep. it to a bunch of different people. Yeah. Yep. I so just AI out the name. Yeah. <laughs> And then the last one is like Twitter threads. So I'll, I'll show an example of Twitter thread in the end. Anyways, people are looking at this with money signs in their eyes. And I'm telling you, I'm like, no, dude, people, people are still smarter than this. We are exceptionally well tuned to figure out whether we're talking to a person or not. It's like a survival instinct at the, at the deepest level. And my assertion is nobody gives a shit what an AI thinks. Not until and they won't until we as a society learn to think of AIs as people. That might happen. And then they become interesting again. But for now, it's like, this is only interesting if you think you're connecting with another person. As soon as you get rid of that magic and all of a sudden somebody thinks, oh, this was just AI, they're not going to pay attention anymore. They're going to tune it out so fast. And so I've said this, and I'll pause in a second because I've now been talking for like 15 minutes straight. But I said this and the question that came back is, do you think people will actually be able to tell? So how do, let me and I'm going to say yes, and I'll show you how I figured that out with this article. But you said you just got an AI video. How did how were you able to tell? And what's your take on this? I just knew it was a thing. I just knew it was a thing. So I agree that it'll be a net positive, but it's only going to make real content more valuable. And the example that I think in my head is food. Like McDonald's didn't make restaurants not popular. Right. They didn't close down restaurants. They didn't shut down the restaurant industry. All it did really is make restaurants more relatable and made it more demand for restaurants that have personality behind it. Right. You go for the experience. It's very similar. And so there's going to be a market for McDonald's copy. There's going to be a market for this. Maybe it'll be templated emails that. I get a gazillion of every single day and I delete right away. Maybe, I mean, who knows? Google's going to figure this out really quick. I'm telling you, like, and some will get through for sure. It's not going to be perfect. And so I don't expect this to totally go away, but there's still a huge market for a beautiful restaurant with personal wait staff food yeah. that tastes amazing, that has a great experience, a conversation with people that you enjoy and like. And so I, I actually, my take on this is like, okay, nobody's going to get out of the job. I'm really bored of it already. I'm bored of all the tweets like, oh, this is all over. I was like, okay, whatever. I'm going to keep writing. It's not going to change my life at all. And so right. I, that's my comparison. But my other comparison is that it's just how we talked about with comedy. The joke still has to land. And maybe AI can make people laugh. I'm sure it can. I'm sure the AI is only going to improve. And that's a whole other conversation. But we're not there right now. And the thing is, the economics of this stuff always get to a weird middle ground where it doesn't make sense to force it to the mass adoption stage because it's solving for a problem that doesn't actually exist. And that's always where these bell curve things collapse. It's a cool idea, but you know, there, there actually isn't a huge shortage school problem right now that yeah. bitcoin needs to come in and solve there's no problem for bitcoin to solve so it's useful but it's not going to happen there's no actual problem for ai to solve it's useful but it's just not going to happen and so that that's my take on it it's mcdonald's and people eat at mcdonald's every day but people also don't and so it's, it's kind of irrelevant to me that's a really interesting analogy and i i think you're right and in What's interesting too is that I would even say it's not maybe not necessarily McDonald's, but the system, or to take it one step further, the system that McDonald's pioneered, which exactly. has that's, that's enabled really not only McDonald's, 
Yeah. And it's like others who have now built businesses all over the place based on the same thing. I totally agree. And again, I'll say it. I'll say it again, because I'm sure this will be taken out of context. I am not anti AI gen, but I do want to caution people against something that most people are not going to say right now, which is it's going to be massively overhyped. It should be used. Definitely leverage this like any other tool. But just realize there's a very powerful player out there who, by the way, I've, I've, uh, Google has officially categorized this content as spam. So they are officially hunting for you. Um, but even beyond that, what forgets, forget Google for a second. I think there's a very human component to this that people aren't talking about, which is that when you put forth, like, I actually think people are playing with fire a little bit with their personal brands and t- experimenting with this stuff. Yeah. Now, I because we're early, I give people passes all the time because it's just super novel. It's very interesting and I've done it myself. You like you want to you want to create and see what it can do and that's that's super cool. But let me let me go back to this example for a second and walk you through the mental experience that your the people listening to this your customers might be having in some cases, right? So I came here looking for information on 10 ways that Google is going to defeat GPT-3. I find this article by this person who is MIT qualified. And I'm like, oh, great. This is good information. He's probably not a real person. No, thank you. I'm not sure. See, I know the, I know the co-founder of Boom and Bucket. So I, I'm not sure who his co-founder is, but I haven't looked him up. Even if he is a real person, here's what I'm assuming, just based on what I've seen so far. This could be a fake person, but I'm kind of guessing it's a real person. And he actually is from MIT, which is why he was interested in GPT-3 in the first place. Makes and so sense. this was kind of like a tongue-in-cheek developer experiment. And the fact that he got it to rank on Google is legendary, <laughs> right? So 100% pass on this article. But I want, to, I want to use it as an example for what's going to start happening as this proliferates. Because this isn't going to be a an isolated example very soon. It's going to be a recurring problem that users run into. So I get here. I start reading. Now, I said about a third of the way through this, I started to suspect this is what I was going to get. This was actually created by an AI. And there's a few reasons. One, I mentioned um, your brain's like hyper dialed in for sure to connect with people. And I think that while the AIs are good, they're they're actually not that great. And and so in this case, um, there's two things that stood out. First, the style is like very there's a certain style when these things write. They all write the same way. There's like a declar a declaration and then like a paragraph or two yeah. backing it up. But more importantly than that, the quality of this article did not match what I was expecting from somebody who has been educated at MIT. And so I was reading this and I'm going, oh great. He gives a quick background like what GPT three is. And I was like a little bit let down by the description. It wasn't super clear. I was like, oh, that's okay, that's kind of helpful. Get keep going, keep going. And then right about here you'll see it, it just breaks down. So there's this, I think this is the third or fourth bullet point. The first two or three go like this. They say Google will use sentiment analysis to identify weekly written content. That's interesting. That one pretty much fooled me. Not a great description on how that works. And it says Google will not, this is the second one. Google will not rank any article that takes less than five minutes to write. Okay, interesting. But then in the back of my mind, I'm like going, I'm going, how does Google know? Yeah, how do they know? Well, here's the description that the AI wrote. It goes, however, Google has to stay ahead of the curve and deter the algorithm from ranking any article that takes less than five minutes to write. <laughs> Google's AI is already pretty good at detecting this, and with Google's vast amount of data, it can tell what length content is generating the most traffic. And this is where the human side starts to kick in. And a little bit of it is experience with these things. Once you play with them, you start to recognize this, because you go, oh, it's saying something without even saying anything. Yeah, That sounds like a good justification for what it asserted up top, until you dig into it and realize there's actually no substance to that description at all. So that's where it starts to break down. And then right here, this fourth one, it goes, Google will start securing SEO rankings for the first person it was created for. I was like, that's interesting. What does that what mean? What does that mean? Yeah. And then it, it literally, then I'm just going to read this quote for quote so, so that people um, listen and get it. Second person. But if it doesn't, here's why Google's ranking algorithms will continue to favor original content. And then there's a colon after that, like it's going to list something. And then it goes, third person. The first person to write an article on a GPT-3-powered site is more likely to get SEO rankings from Google. Here's why. So there's like, there's no connection between these ideas at all, (laughs) right? 
This is what these things are turning out. Now, this would be good if you had a human interacting with it. You go, oh, yeah. okay, maybe Google will start securing rankings. Is there history for that? Has somebody talked about that? You go look through interviews. Like it can be a great groundwork for it. But but humans are still able to recognize, even with just a little bit of experience, like with this or with the video that you saw, that they're interacting with something that is not genuine. And I think it's going to be a huge turnoff. And that's where the, the the second part of this comes in, which is like I said, I give this author a huge pass because he's technical. This is super new. This would piss me off three months from now, right? And this is a brand burner. And I'm going to give you another example of it. I don't know this person. So I'm sorry if this comes you across the wrong way. I don't know. I have no idea. And, and oh, to some great. extent, I'm sure he is. But I, and this is another example. I give him total pass on this because it's brand new. It's just experimenting, but I want to call out for people the internal experience that users are going to start to have, right? So Ali Abdal, he wrote this thread and it says in five years, or no, actually, I want to get the follow up because he followed up. This is a, he's got a thread here. I'll, I'll read the, the headline for this. It goes, in five years of YouTube, the most common question I still get from my viewers is, how are you so productive? Here is a thread of 15 actionable tips that help me do more of the things that matter to me without burning out. Now, as everybody can probably guess, this thread was completely written by AI. Interestingly enough, nowhere in the thread does he mention that. And this is, uh, he did a follow-up where he said, he said, I just published my most popular thread. Well, let me quote him because I don't want to, I don't want to put, I'm already calling him out. Let me at least let him defend himself with his own words. So here's the quote that came. This is what came on my radar. He said, 24 hours ago, I tried an experiment. I tweeted a thread with 15 productivity hacks. It's become one of my highest performing tweets of all time with over a million impressions and 23,648 engagements. The truth, the entire thread was written by AI. Let me explain. That is cool for now. This will piss people off. if you And if you play with fire with your personal brand like this, you are going to get burned, man. Trust. I mean, who is it? Munger says it or Buffett says it. it takes forever to build. One second to lose misleading thread like this, yeah. it's all gone. So here's the thing that pisses me off about thread. You read this thing as a, as a user, not as somebody who's observing somebody else experimenting with AI. Ollie gets a pass, right? But let's just pretend it's a few months from now. And you're like, hey, I'm really looking for some helpful information on how to be a good YouTuber. Item number one, set a daily highlight. Item number two, have an hourglass on your desk. And, and there's descriptions for each of these. There's like a, a one sentence description after each one. Set a no internet day once a week. Make a to-do list. The the Pomodoro technique, it's, it's just all the same LinkedIn drivel that you see everywhere. But the problem is you're trusting this person to give you their advice on what they do, right? And this is not that. So again, not a knock on Ollie because he's just experimenting. But for people who are looking at this and going, oh my God, this AI just created the most, I can finally be popular on Twitter. I can yeah. finally, it's going to be so much easier now. Exactly. Yo, stay away from that. You can use this to generate ideas, maybe even to lay tweets out, but you've got to put yourself in these because if you just AI gen stuff, people are, they're going to be able to notice and it will absolutely burn your brand. Not that long from now. That's my hot take. Great hot take. I loved every second of it. And <laughs> in just 26 minutes. Yeah. I, I think it means a lot to us. Just like it means a lot to everybody that is fearful of not just their livelihood, but their identity to an extent being taken away by a robot or AI. I feel the same way I always have in that when everything is commoditized, then what's left and what's left succeeds and everything that's commoditized is a race to the bottom. And somebody wins that race. We've talked about this before. Like Amazon has won that race. BuzzFeed has won that race. They won the race to the bottom. So they own that spot. And that's how they, well, BuzzFeed is actually a terrible example because their business is like completely in shambles. Let's just use Amazon, right? Pretty good business, I heard. You can't out Amazon, Amazon. You can't out AI, AI. And so when there's a playing field of baseline commoditization, the best that you're going to get is like second or third or even 10th place. And that's the worst place to be because unless you're, you've won the race at the bottom, nobody's going to pay for you because they'll just go to the cheapest, most commoditized version. They'll go to Amazon. 
they'll buy their toilet paper from Amazon. And you don't want to be toilet paper content. So when everything looks the same, like what is left? And what's left is the five-star restaurant that sells out every night. And I, I don't know, like I don't know restaurants very well, but that's the example. What's left is the personal trainer that has created like a really great reputation and has built a real following and like helped people and built testimonials to the gym. What's left is going to be the writers <laughs> that tell stories that's meaningful. So in the case of writing, like what's in the case of everything, actually, the thing that's left after commoditation, commoditization wins the race to the bottom is connection because people can tell. And if you don't have that, people are just going to ignore you. And so I'm, I'm excited about it because it gives me an opportunity to double down on the thing that makes me a person which is being able to connect with people. And so like, it's, it's really a huge opportunity in my view. Yeah, I think so. I think I, like I've now said this three or four times inside this rant, I still think these tools are a net positive and they're yeah. going to be really interesting to see what comes out of them. I just feel like with all the hype, I wanted to share this pretty poignant warning, which you probably will not see inside the Twitter. Oh, maybe you will. But I don't know. It, it was, it was, it was on my mind and I had to get it off my chest. So that's my, that's my hot take on this. I, I really liked what you said about connection. Maybe we'll end it here. At the end of the day, I don't think people care about content at all. The only reason content is interesting is because people care about people. Yeah. Like at a deep. Yeah. Evolutionary yes. biological level. We are the hardwired. deepest level that there is. You, right. There's nothing deeper for us than being there, a person. There is no crossover on that to AI. Mm. People don't care what computers think. It's impressive what they can do, and it's novel, but nobody's going to sign up to hear what a computer thinks every single day until and unless we get to a point where you start to think of these computers as as people. People. And then it's interesting again, and we might get there, and then this whole thing changes. But for now, just just remember that what we're after here is connection, and and yeah, connection and authenticity, and just be be very careful with your personal brands on this stuff. That's all I got for today, man. This was Great, cool, man. Great episode. Yeah, we went through a lot. We went through Gary Goldman, some great tips there. Be careful with AI. <laughs> My favorite episode. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know what you think, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check out thecopyblogerpod.com. Uh, drop your email. Get uh, the guide that we've got out there. What is the guide for again? It's called The Killer and the Poet. It's a beautiful representation about how you can combine technical copywriting with poetry, with storytelling. So if you can tell stories and you can be technical, you're a killer and a poet. And that's how you get rich. We'll teach yeah. you how to do that. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. See you guys.